0: This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is The Blessings of Righteous Living. In the first half, Spencer J. Condy shares his address, A Disposition to Do Good Continually. Then in the second half, our Bruce Money speaks on the Lord's Country and Kingdom, Your Passport.
1: As a little boy... A favorite activity in my grandparents' home was climbing upon my grandpa's lap to have him read children's stories from the Book of Mormon. Grandpa Condi read slowly and deliberately, and I felt the spirit of the Book of Mormon and easily associated the Savior's love for me as Grandpa lovingly held me close to him. One of my favorite stories was the account of Venerable King Benjamin, who called upon all of his loyal subjects to gather around the temple where he would give them his parting counsel. He reminded the people four times that he had received the text of his talk from an angel of the Lord, and the speech he delivered is one of the greatest in all of holy writ. At the heart of King Benjamin's benedictory address was the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Though the Savior would not be born on earth for another hundred and twenty-four years, King Benjamin spoke as though Christ had already come among them. He described the Savior's future earthly mission in detail of how he would suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For, behold, blood cometh from every pore. so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the Creator of all things from the beginning. And his mother shall be called Mary, And, lo, he cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. As Benjamin concluded the sermon given him by an angel, the multitude fell to the earth as they viewed themselves in their own carnal state. And they cried aloud with one voice, saying, O have mercy, and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive a forgiveness of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins. Being filled with joy is one of the reassuring hallmarks that we have received a remission of our sins. Alma taught that wickedness never was happiness, and this statement is akin to the predictability of the law of gravity it is virtually impossible to be filled with joy while we are entertaining evil thoughts and wicked practices. Alma taught the inhabitants of Zarahemla that a mighty change of heart should be reflected by the image of Christ in their countenances. Now, some of us, myself included, were born with a face that only a mother could love. But it can still be a happy face. My face is no shining star. There are others handsomer by far. But my face, I don't mind it because I'm behind it. It's you folks out there. Get the jar. (laughs) One of the signs of having received a remission of sins is a joyful heart and a cheerful countenance. A second sign of receiving a remission of sins is reflected by the peace of conscience which Benjamin's people experienced because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ who should come. As an old man... My list of past sins is so long I cannot begin to remember them all. But the list is so long I can't forget them all either. But I can remember them with a peace of conscience. Benjamin assured his listeners that as ye have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, or ye, if ye have known of his goodness and have tasted of his love and have received a remission of your sins, then ye shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. Hearts filled with love become a third confirmation that our sins are forgiven. A heart filled with love has no room for discouragement or doubt, fear, hatred, vengeance, envy, lust, or greed, because a heart full of love is full. King Benjamin describes a fourth indicator of retaining a remission of our sins, and that is we will not have a mind to injure one another but to live peaceably. Not having a mind to injure one another is reflected by our overcoming even the very inclination to put others down, to tell jokes defaming a given ethnic group, or to speak of a roommate or spouse or any others in unflattering terms. Brother David M. Sorensen has been engaged in counseling and marital therapy for many years. He once told me he has seen hateful, hurtful marriage relationships turn on a dime when couples merely agree. To be kind to each other for a day, a week, a month, and then a lifetime. A fifth hallmark of retaining a remission of our sins is that we will not suffer our children that they go hungry or naked, and neither will we suffer that they transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel one with another. But we will teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. We will teach them to love one another and to serve one another. Franklin Don Wadsworth was an enterprising young man from Nevada who met a beautiful, lovely young woman from Salt Lake City by the name of Sylvia Hinckley. They were soon married and were blessed with eleven children, seven sons and four daughters. When the youngest son, David, was seven years of age, his lovely mother died suddenly at age forty-nine. Notwithstanding this tragic and untimely loss, the Wadsworth children rallied round their heartbroken father providing great comfort to him and to each other. Then, just seventeen months later, not long after David was baptized, his father died at age fifty-six, leaving eight unmarried children at home. The relatives counseled together, and it was decided that one uncle and his wife would take some of the children into their home, and another uncle and aunt would care for the rest of the children in their home. At this point the Wadsworth children met in family council, with the oldest son, Franklin Brent, taking charge. The children unanimously agreed that their deceased parents would not want them to be separated and unable to see each other frequently during their formative years. Their parents had taught them to serve one another and to be responsible for one another, so they declined any outside help. The members of the extended family agreed to stand back and let them give it a try. Lark was in her third year in high school and the school allowed her to take all of her classes early in the day so she'd be home in time to welcome the younger children when they arrived home from school. Valerie was in the process of graduating from college, and she found a job nearby and helped with the younger children for the first year. Scott was a returned missionary, and he worked the family farm and commuted to Cedar City, where he attended college. All of the children eventually went to college, and all of the sons served missions. At the point at which there were only two remaining children living at home—David, then fourteen, and Charlotte, seventeen—they were invited by their older sister Terry and her husband Laurel Blake to live with their family. Though Dawn and Sylvia Wadsworth were snatched from their mortal existence prematurely, they had taught their children by precept and example that true joy comes from loving and serving others and placing the needs of others above their own. Now, in post-mortality, Don and Sylvia claim a rich posterity of 106 grandchildren and 80 great-grandchildren. A sixth measure of our remission of sins, according to King Benjamin, is that we will succor those that stand in need of our succor, that we impart of our substance to the poor, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, in this regard giving generous fast offerings, and emulating the lifelong ministry of our beloved President Thomas S. Monson readily come to mind. At the conclusion of King Benjamin's forthright counsel, the people all cried with one voice, assuring him, We believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, because of the Spirit of the Lord God omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. This is the test of retaining a remission of our sins. That is, we overcome any inclination to do evil, supplanting it with a sustained disposition to do good continually. This is the demonstration of discipleship. The Savior humbly testified, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me. I do always those things that please him. His was a disposition. To do good continually. Now, some contend that because Christ was the Son of God, he was exempt from temptation. But that belief is contrary to the scriptural record of his earthly ministry. We are all aware of his temptations by Satan after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And just prior to entering the Garden of Gethsemane, he expressed his gratitude to Peter, James, and John, who, said the Savior, have continued with me in my temptations." The Apostle Paul wrote of Jesus Christ, who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Alma foresaw the Savior suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. And how is the Savior able to resist and transcend all these temptations of the flesh? We read in Doctrine and Covenants 20.22, He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. Because of the Savior's divine disposition to do good continually, no temptation nor bitter cup could distract him or dissuade him from performing his divine mission. The well-known British cleric Friedrich Ferrer observed that the only difference between the temptations of Christ and our own temptations is that his came from without, but ours come also from within. In Christ, the tempting opportunity could not appeal to the susceptible disposition. Our goal in life should be to overcome the susceptible disposition. Within the restored kingdom of God on earth, the making and keeping of covenants is a central doctrine and practice with a divine purpose in helping us develop a disposition to do good continually. Covenants are the promises to keep the Lord's commandments, and they are an integral part of gospel ordinances. The word ordinance shares etymological roots with the word order, and so it is that ordinances help order our lives in such a way that we prioritize the use of our time, our means, and our talents in serving Heavenly Father's other children and assisting in the building of His kingdom. It is through the ordinances of the priesthood that the powers of godliness are manifest unto men in the flesh. Captain Moroni declared, I, Moroni, am constrained, according to the covenants which I have made, to keep the commandments of my God. There is a pulling power inherent in keeping covenants, a power that pulls us onward and ever upward toward our celestial home. It is not only important but indispensable that we frequently renew our covenants in sacrament meeting and in the temple which remind us of the Lord's exceeding great and precious promises contingent upon our obedience to His commandments. Covenants are kept when we feel the promises we renew. It is then that doing good continually no longer becomes a tedious task but rather a daily delight. President David O. McKay was fond of reminding the Saints, Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character so a character reap a destiny. Twenty-five years ago, Heiko Mazurek was a young German music student in Vienna, Austria. One day he was walking down the street when a Book of Mormon display caught his eye. So he stopped to talk with the missionaries, and they gave him a copy of the Book of Mormon. He began to read it and to accept the missionary discussions, and eventually he was baptized. Shortly after his baptism, he moved back to his home in Germany To accept a teaching position in a music school. As the mission president at the time, I was concerned that a new convert might get lost in the shuffle of moving away so shortly after baptism. I called Heiko's new stake president and asked him if he could give Heiko some special attention to assure that he remained active and committed to the kingdom. A few weeks after Heiko's arrival in Germany, his caring stake president invited him to travel three hours by train. To a Saturday stake priesthood meeting to share his conversion story with the Brethren. Heiko accepted the invitation with much fear and trepidation. He would never spoken to a large audience before, so the evening prior to his appointed speech Heiko spent a rather sleepless night tossing and turning. When the alarm clock finally rang, he turned it off and promised himself he would just sleep for a few more minutes and then get up. Does that sound familiar? However, he was so exhausted from his fitful night's sleep that he awoke too late to catch the last morning train in time to arrive at the stake center to give his talk. He hurriedly dressed and rode his bike to the small airport outside of town, and although he was a financially struggling musician, he chartered a small plane for $400 to fly him to his destination. The stake president phoned me in Vienna after the meeting and described how Heiko arrived all out of breath. But he gave a wonderful and inspiring testimony, and all in attendance were grateful for the sacrifice he had made to attend. Several months later Heiko visited us in Vienna, and he rehearsed his experience of chartering the plane to the priesthood meeting. When he concluded, I asked, Heiko, why didn't you just call President Rookauer and tell him you'd not be able to make it to the meeting and that you'd be willing to speak on some future occasion? Heiko looked at me indignantly as he said, President Kondi, when the missionaries taught me the gospel, they explained the importance of commitments and of making covenants, and they said that when we make a promise to the Lord or one of his servants, we are expected to keep our word. To this day, Heiko continues to do good continually, and Church members still introduce him to their non-member friends as the legendary guy with the airplane. The parable of the prodigal son illustrates, in bold relief, a wide variety of human dispositions. First, there is the self-centered prodigal son, unconcerned with anyone or anything but himself. But, alas, after riotous living, he discovered for himself that wickedness never was happiness. And he came to himself, and he eventually realized whose son he really was, and he yearned to be reunited with his father. His arrogant selfish disposition had given way to humility and a broken heart and a contrite spirit as he confessed to his father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Gone were the adolescent rebellion, the immature selfishness and relentless pleasure seeking, and in their place was an embryonic disposition to do good continually. Now, if we're completely honest with ourselves, We will each confess that there is or has been a bit of the prodigal son in every one of us. Then there is the father. Some may criticize him for having been overly indulgent in granting the younger son's request to give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. The father in the parable was undoubtedly sensitive to the divine principle of moral agency and freedom of choice, a principle over which the premortal war in heaven had been waged. He was not inclined to compel his son to be obedient, but this loving father never gave up on his wayward son, and his unrelenting vigilance is confirmed in the poignant narration that when the son was yet a great way off, his father had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Not only was there an open display of physical affection toward his son, but the father requested his servants to give him a robe and shoes for his feet and a ring for his hand and to kill the fatted calf, joyfully declaring he was lost and is found. Throughout the years this father had continually developed such a compassionate, forgiving, loving disposition. He could do nothing else but love and forgive. This parable is a universal favorite for all of us because it holds out the hope to each one of us that a loving Father in heaven stands in the roadway, as it were, anxiously awaiting the arrival of each of his prodigal children back home. And now to the older obedient son, who protested to his forgiving father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Just as there may be an element of the prodigal son in each of us, it may also be the case that every one of us is tainted with traits of the older son. The Apostle Paul described the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. It may well be that the older son had indeed been obedient to his father. Beneath the obedient surface was seething subterranean self-righteousness and a disposition to be judgmental, covetous, and totally lacking in compassion. His life did not reflect the fruit of the Spirit, for he was not at peace, but rather greatly distressed at what he perceived to be gross inequity of treatment. The mighty prophet Ezekiel taught that if a righteous man trust to his own righteousness and then commit iniquity, and all his righteous acts shall not be remembered. But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. Yet, ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal or equitable. O ye house of Israel, I will judge you every one after his ways. This great prophet taught the people that the righteous judge of us all is not computing a running total of all of our good deeds from which all of our evil deeds will be subtracted. Rather, we will be judged after our ways, our way of life, and our dispositions to do good or evil. In 2005, the CEO of a large business corporation was sentenced to 25 years in prison for defrauding his company and its shareholders of $11 billion. His defense attorney pointed out that over the years his client had contributed $95 million to charitable causes. And then the attorney asked the judge, If you live sixty-some-odd years and you have an unblemished record and you have endless numbers of people who attest to your goodness, doesn't that count? Ezekiel would likely respond that actually those good deeds do not count for much because, overshadowing all of the good deeds of the distant past—like the mission in Taiwan or Texas—are the more egregious dark deeds of the recent past. King Benjamin would perhaps share the observation that this particular individual still had an unfettered disposition to do evil on a grand scale. He had inflicted great suffering upon numerous employees, shareholders, and clients whose trust had been betrayed at a terrible personal cost to each of them. In the process of becoming, he would become a crook. As a second prophetic voice, Elder Dallin H. Oaks teaches us that testimony involves believing and feeling, whereas conversion includes doing and becoming. To quote Elder Oaks, The final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts—what we have become. While serving in the South Pacific, I received a letter from the First Presidency with an assignment to travel to Fiji and to deliver a letter to Tanyela Wakolo, president of the Nausori Fiji Stake. After I handed the letter to him, he read aloud the call from the First Presidency to serve as an Area Seventy. And tears flowed freely from his cheeks and those of his lovely wife, Anita. After discussing with him the nature and duties of his new calling, I observed a tattoo on Brother Wakolo's large right hand. Now, tattoos are very common throughout the South Pacific, and long before he had joined the church, Tanyela had the back of his hand tattooed with a large, garish design. I said, Brother Wakolo, in your new calling as an Area 70, You're going to be speaking to the youth on many occasions. I would suggest before such meetings that you put a large band-aid on the back of your hand to cover your tattoo. It's hard to discourage our youth from getting tattoos when the speaker has one himself. He smiled a broad smile, and with a radiant expression he said, I'll take care of it. I want to be a good example. A few weeks passed, and the next time we met, his hand was heavily bandaged as if he were preparing for a boxing match. I asked, What in the world happened to you? He smiled with glistening eyes and said, I followed your counsel and had the tattoo removed. Was it laser surgery? I asked. No, he replied with a big smile. They don't remove tattoos with lasers in Fiji. I had it surgically cut out. A month later Elder Wakolo and I were assigned together to reorganize a stake presidency in American Samoa. As we met at the airport, I immediately noticed an unsightly scar on the back of his hand where the surgeon had removed several square inches of skin and then very crudely sutured the gaping wound closed. This had not been performed by a plastic surgeon. I apologized for having been the cause of the large scar on the back of his hand. He responded with a radiant Christ-like countenance, Not to worry, President Conde. This is my CTR ring. Now the Lord knows where I stand. I'll do anything the Lord asks of me. Elder Wakolo has become a disciple who keeps his covenants and strives to do good continually. My precious young brothers and sisters, I invoke the blessings of heaven upon each and every one of you of the rising generation and pray that your righteous thoughts and deeds will overcome any susceptible disposition to do evil and that the Holy Spirit will be your constant companion in helping you to develop a disposition to do good continually. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is the blessings of righteous living. We've just heard from Spencer J. Condy. After the break, we'll return with R. Bruce Money for the Lord's Country and Kingdom, Your Passport. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the blessings of righteous living. Next is our Bruce Money, the Fred Meyer Professor of Marketing and International Business and Executive Director of the Whitmore Global Management Center at the BYU Marriott School at the time of this address, titled The Lord's Country and Kingdom, Your Passport.
2: I am honored to speak to you today, but first I need to deal with that quizzical look on your faces about my last name. Yes, it really is money, and yes, I really am a professor at the business school. It was even better when I worked at the bank. My colleagues would say, Mr. Money's here, we can open the vault now. A reporter from the Wall Street Journal called a few years ago to interview me for a story she was doing about professors whose fields fit their names like a Dr. Payne she found at a dental school. She asked, but I assured her I was not going to name a daughter Penny. The story was indeed published on the front page of the Wall Street Journal as one of those fun stories. So there you have it, how I managed to use up a few minutes of my fame in this life. Now we can move on. Devotionals are a special part of being at BYU, and I commend you for taking advantage of the opportunity to learn and to grow, in spite of the fact I'm the one speaking today. Devotionals help you think about the difference between things that are really important and things that are not. So when I was asked to speak, I asked my kids, several of whom are BYU students, what should I talk about? We were at the dinner table, My nephew was visiting, and he said, hey, that's easy. If you want to play to the crowd, just talk about dating. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to talk about dating, but I am going to talk about something very important to me, and I believe it's important to you. And that is how you, as a member of this global church, can stay within the borders of and be a strong citizen of the Lord's, quote, country and kingdom, end quote. A phrase I'll explain a little later no matter where you come from or travel to, Moscow, Russia, or Moscow, Idaho, or any one of the 17 small towns in the U.S. named Paris, even the one in France. Like citizenship in temporal countries, you need a passport for the Lord's country and kingdom. I will talk about how to stamp that passport and keep it valid. Before doing that, however, may I say just a word about getting out of Provo? If the world is our campus then we need to get out there on that campus. Serving as the director of the Global Management Center, I oversee the international activities of the Marriott School. I love BYU international experiences. Just a few weeks ago, I attended the reunion of the London Study Abroad Program, in which I was a student. That program started 33 years ago this month. and Amazingly, many of us still keep in touch. I've directed many study abroad programs of my own, and as a faculty member, I love to see the growth in students as their horizons expand. To quote Mark Twain, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, end quote. May I reiterate, if the world is our campus, then let's get out on campus. In the Tanner Building where I work, in the large atrium, there hang 82 flags representing the countries from which our business students hail. The flags aren't just for decoration. Our mission statement reinforces the imperative to train global leaders for a global economy and a global church. So I've encouraged you to get out of Provo, my commercial message, if you will. One non-commercial thing you will learn out there on the campus of our world is an appreciation for the privilege of studying and living here in the U.S. and the price others have paid for your freedom to worship according to the dictates of your own conscience. During that same study abroad program, my father came to visit, and we took an excursion to France where his uncle is buried in a World War I military cemetery. The young Lars Lester Larson, big brother to my dad's mother, was sent to France as a private in September of 1918 and was last seen alive filling his his canteen in a small creek before enemy artillery fire set in. He was killed just weeks before the armistice. The blue star on the banner in the Larson's living room window, a national tradition which indicated a son was serving in the military, was changed to gold, the sign that a son had died in combat. His mother was heartbroken and fell ill. Her health never recovered. After the war, the government organized a trip overseas for those gold star mothers of soldiers buried in Europe to visit the graves of their sons. She died the day the ship set sail from New York. So my father and I were the first two relatives ever to visit his uncle's gravesite to dedicate it for a glorious resurrection. When we arrived at the grave marker for Private Larson. In the midst of thousands of crosses with nobody else around, the first thing my father did was put on a suit coat and a tie. He said, Son, we are here to dedicate a grave, a priesthood duty, and when you perform the duties of the priesthood, you do so appropriately attired. After his dedicatory prayer, he said, Grandmother would be happy. And not only did I learn to be appropriately dressed when performing the duties of the priesthood, I learned the terrible price it was paid for our citizenship in a free country, much like the sacrifices of our spiritual forebearers and Jesus Christ himself to allow us to be members of the Lord's country and kingdom, the title of my remarks. The phrase comes from Doctrine and Covenants, section 88. This first verse is quoted often. Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you, that ye may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, and all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God. Here's the verse I'm emphasizing today of things both in heaven and in the earth, and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms, that ye may be prepared in all things. So what I'd like to talk about to you today is your citizenship in the Lord's country and kingdom. What puts you on his side of the borderline? How to make sure you always have a stamped valid passport? What keeps us strong within the Lord's province? I'm holding here my passport. If you lose your passport on an international trip, or if it's not valid, that trip stops rather abruptly. Let's not let that happen on our eternal journey. Let me illustrate the theme of borders with a true tale from my, one of my study abroad programs as a director. We were in Venice, Italy, having taken a very small ferry boat from our bus terminal across the Grand Canal to a dock. The time was appointed to leave, and all the students were there except a handful. Uh, the Italian boat captain revved his engine, signaling departure. Now, his English was poor, my Italian was worse, but somehow we communicated that he wanted the boat to leave and I wanted it to stay for the missing students. So to emphasize my negotiating position, I placed one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. Not too smart. To emphasize his rather superior negotiating position, the captain slowly began pulling away from the dock with me about to fall into the water. Now I'll tell you what happened later, but that experience illustrates... How impossible it is to have one foot on the Lord's side and one on the adversaries. And the gap is getting wider and wider. What's at stake for you is more than a refreshing dip in the Grand Canal and a soggy wallet. What's at stake is your very soul. My message, therefore, is less about tourism and more about a spiritual journey with way stations of experiences that happen to me out there on the campus of our world. Many times with BYU students where I've learned very important eternal lessons. So, what of the Lord's country and kingdom, its borders, and your citizenship? Sherry Dew gave a devotional speech some years ago entitled, Living on the Lord's Side of the Line. and She described her experience visiting the demilitarized zone, or DMZ, that divides North and South Korea. She described the anxiety of leaving the protection of the United States and compared it to leaving the Lord's side of the line. Having stood with BYU students in that same DMZ and having a father who served as an army chaplain in the Korean conflict, that message became very personal to me. So what to do specifically at home or abroad to live within the borders of and be strong citizens of the Lord's country and kingdom with a valid passport? I'll name four things. The first two being private religious behavior and public religious behavior. The third I will call just being nice. Nice. And the fourth, remaining true in the face of trials. Now, you know these things. There's nothing new here. But as Elder Neal A. Maxwell said, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. End quote. The first stamp in your passport to the Lord's country and kingdom is private religious behavior, one component of which is prayer. By the time I was a return missionary, I thought I'd learned all about the need to pray in Sunday school as a kid, Right? Let me tell you where I really learned about my duty to pray. I learned it from a Polish man in a youth hostel in Innsbruck, Switzerland, traveling around Europe during my study abroad as a BYU student. Now, as you may know, youth hostels are cheap, gender separate, but communal lodging with large rooms full of bunk beds. And here I was about ready to retire for the evening in a room full of people I did not know and a little shy about praying in front of strangers. This older Polish man with a jovial laugh ran around the room asking each of us where we were from. His English was limited, but he ascertained as he pointed, "Americanin." Americanin? Americanin? Oh, everybody, Americanine! Joking around about being outnumbered, he excused himself, knelt beside his bed and offered up his evening prayers in Polish as the, a as the hush fell over the room. I'll always remember being slightly embarrassed. Me, a returned missionary who had taught others to pray, I had not led the way. I committed then and there to never fail to pray, no matter what the circumstances. Pray for your families. Pray for those around you who struggle. Pray for the rulers of nations and their people that the work may be hastened throughout the world as the Prophet Joseph prayed at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, the first dedicatory prayer of this dispensation. He prayed for the kings. The princes, the nobles, the great ones of the earth, that their hearts may be softened, that all the ends of the earth may know that thou hast sent us. My father, from whom I acquired my love of travel, would always kneel in prayer with us before setting off on the day's adventures. I remember that so vividly, more than the adventures. In your life, pray hard, then work hard, and go and do something more, and dream of your mansion above. Another component of private religious behavior is scripture study. In the current study guide for Melchizedek Priesthood Quorums and Relief Society, Joseph Fielding Smith asks us, Can we not arrange to find at least 15 minutes in each day to devote to systematic reading and reflection? Very few among us read too much, and most of us read too little. Don't be guilty of saying, You know, what's in the headlines today is just more interesting and important than what somebody wrote hundreds or thousands of years ago. It is not. Scriptures are somebody's spiritual journals, and those somebodies are prophets of the living God. Temple worship is another aspect of religious behavior to stamp your passport to the Lord's country and kingdom. As a family, one thing we like to do abroad is visit temples from Hong Kong to Switzerland. And closer to home, every time a new temple holds an open house, we try to go with all of our children, younger and older, As we gather in the celestial room, we try to make the point that we only have one goal in life, as their parents, to see all seven of our children and their spouses eventually back in a temple celestial room someday. Because if we get that head start, maybe, just maybe, our whole family will be back in the presence of our Heavenly Father in the celestial kingdom. And if your family is like ours, I can guarantee you your parents feel the exact same way temple is the mountain of the Lord, and all nations shall flow unto it. Temples are certainly within the boundaries of the Lord's country and kingdom, and you are recommended as a passport stamp. The last element of private religious behavior I'll mention is to follow the prophets. We sustain 15 of them on the earth today. About two years ago, I stood in the church in Copenhagen, Denmark, where stands the original Christus statue by the Danish sculptor Thorvaldsen. Around the chapel also stand statues of Christ's 12 apostles. President Spencer W. Kimball visited that church in 1975, accompanied by several members of the Quorum of the Twelve. President Kimball said to a kind maintenance worker, pointing to the statues, these are the dead apostles. Then pointing to his brother, and he said, here we have the living apostles. Elder Packer is an apostle. Thomas S. Monson and L. Tom Perry are apostles, and I... Am an apostle. We are the living apostles. The custodian who up to that time had shown little emotion was suddenly in tears. Incidentally, exact replicas of these twelve statues will greet guests in the new Rome Temple Visitor Center. So, in addition to private religious behavior, the second passport stamp for the Lord's country and kingdom is public religious behavior. This includes service to others. Now, countless talks have been given on service, and not to make you feel even more guilty that you are not out right now mowing somebody's lawn, but to uh, keep it top of mind, the poet Milton said, quote, our voluntary service God requires. Think about that. How can service be both voluntary and required? Because God requires your heart as a free will offering. That's why. If you have to force yourself to give, it doesn't count. As a young boy, my son Tanner thought the Tanner Building was named for him. Actually, both my son and the the building are named for President Eldon Tanner, counselor in the first presidency, when I was a youth. I had the honor of meeting him once when I was in high school, and just that brief interaction had a profound impact on my life. Underneath the bust of President Tanner in the lobby of the Tanner Building reads this inscription, Quote, service is the rent we pay for living in this world of ours, end quote. Two months ago, with BYU students, I visited the Mother Teresa House of Charity in India and held a small orphan in my arms. Seeing India with its hundreds of millions of people living in crushing poverty somehow changed me. I'm not sure what the answer is. The easy questions in world economics have already been answered. Only the tough ones remain. But this I do know. I will never look at the line on the church donation slip that says, humanitarian aid, quite the same. We who have been given so much, we too must give. Let's all pay generous fast offerings and other offerings. I have seen places where our contributions will go far and wide. Another aspect of public religious behavior is fulfilling church callings, whatever or wherever they may be. My favorite example, President J. Reuben Clark, Jr. had just served as first counselor to two presidents of the church when he was sustained as second counselor to President McKay. Sensitive to the possibility that some might think he had been demoted, President Clark made this public statement, In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, one takes the place to which one is duly called, which place one neither seeks nor declines. Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave an international perspective, quote, out in the world we refer to the up or down of promotions or reductions, but there is no up and down in church positions. We just move around, end quote. In addition to private and public religious behavior, my third passport stamp in the Lord's country and kingdom is just being nice. Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor and illustrated that commandment with the parable of the good Samaritan. I tell my children, you don't have to go all the way to Samaria to be a good Samaritan. If we're commanded to love our neighbor, who is the neighbor closest to you? I ask them, and they usually respond, well, the so-and-so family across the street. Then I say, how about your sister in the bedroom next to yours? People in your family are your closest neighbors. Just be nice to them. My father's retired military uniform, his chaplain's crust reads, Go and do thou likewise. The closing line from the parable of the Good Samaritan. One aspect of just being nice is appreciating the dignity of every human soul, even those you don't know, but especially those you do, and especially, even more, those that are hard to love among you. On that same London Study Abroad program when I was a student, our group took an excursion to the Soviet Union, and this was not the tourist friendly come see Anastasia's parlor, Russia, of today. It was 1981. The Cold War was raging, and the two superpowers were wrestling close to the edge of another world conflict. Both sides were armed and ready. I was surprised to see on the runway of the Moscow airport that even Soviet passenger jetliners had guns sticking out of the nose guns. Anyway, there was nothing that a good Soviet bureaucrat would love more than to make life difficult for an American. Well, the lucky man in our group was a student who also happened to be someone who was less than fully cooperative with our faculty director, even by his own admission, a bit of a personality conflict. As we were about to leave the airport, this same student was detained by Soviet officials over some passport issue, real or trumped up, I don't know. But I do know I had never seen anyone as scared as he was. He was not getting out of the Soviet Union. And he was in trouble, and there was no negotiating. Our director tried some quick diplomacy, but it wasn't working. Now, one of the director's older children with us, a teenager, who knew this was a bit of a difficult student, said what most of us were thinking but dared not say. She said in offhanded teen talk, No, Dad, just leave him. He's not worth it. In the tension of that moment, I will never forget the director's perfectly calm response. Oh, yes, he is. He's worth it. And we're not leaving without him. My director treated this student as a savior treats us. We are all worth it. The crisis was resolved and we were on our way. In addition to public and private religious behavior and just being nice, my fourth and final passport stamp for the Lord's country and kingdom is to be true in the midst of your trials. Most serious trials I have learned from involve life-changing or life-ending events. You know, People say death is just part of life. It's easy to say unless it's your parent, your spouse, your child, or your close friend. For example, when I was a first year MBA student, the only other Mormon in my section of 80 was a bright, enthusiastic, close friend. One fall afternoon he was crossing the bridge from our student housing to campus and collapsed and died of a heart arrhythmia, 26 years old, leaving a small widow and two a young widow and two small daughters. Jim Rasband, now Dean of BYU's Law School was a law student in our ward at the time. He was the family's home teacher, rendering much-needed service. I had the assignment to speak at this man's funeral as a representative of the business school student body, the most difficult assignment of my life to that point. I learned for the first time in my short 20-something years that life is precious, life is fragile, and the question becomes not why our loved ones suffer and why they are called home when they are, but how. How? How can we ease their suffering? And how can we be as prepared as hopefully they were when our time comes? I also witnessed a very elderly gentleman pass away in an ordinance room in the Los Angeles temple. It seemed like a seamless transition from this life to the next. As a fellow temple patron said, at least he didn't have far to go. <laughs> I referenced my father in this talk. The last talk I gave... It was at the funeral of my father three weeks ago yesterday. There's an old church movie, Man's Search for Happiness. that states, life's greatest test comes with the death of a loved one. End quote. That's when you are faced with what your faith really is. I have faith. I will see my father again someday. But most trials aren't as spectacular as life and death, literally. Most come in the daily struggle. Just to keep plugging, as my grandmother, my father's mother, from Spanish Fork would say. So, to recap, these four things. Private religious behavior, public religious behavior, just being nice and enduring your trials well. We'll stamp your passport to the Lord's country and kingdom and keep it valid. But I can almost hear the refrain rising from the audience. Oh, come on, Brother Money, these are the Sunday School Answers. Or, hey, if we got all that when we were sunbeams, that's great. If we didn't, aren't you about 20 years too late? True, my young friends, these are the Sunday school answers. But let me say something here and now. The longer I live, the more funerals at which I speak, the more I have come to realize that the Sunday school answers are the answers. Let me repeat that. The Sunday school answers are the answers. So listen up in Sunday school. Passport in hand, stamped with the four things I've discussed today. The other things you will learn wherever pure gospel doctrine is taught. And it will land your soul, yea, your immortal soul, quoting Helaman, in the kingdom of heaven to go no more out, end quote. As much as I love travel, when I arrive there, I'm not interested in leaving that country. I will retire my passport. Therefore, don't ever let your passport to the Lord's country and kingdom lapse. If you do, you'll find yourself outside its borders or at least trying to straddle them, which means I need to finish my story on the Venice boat dock. The distance between my one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat slowly became wider and wider. It was clear the boat captain was not going to hold the boat for my students and I was not going to leave without them. My legs continued to spread. My blood pressure went up and my dear wife and students on the boat screaming. I thought of something out of a Mark's Brothers or Charlie Chaplin movie or how about a great YouTube video watching me plop into the brink. I heard the sounds of my rescue thundering down the alleyway and the remaining students clambered over the dock and jumped a few ever-widening feet onto the boat. The boat captain and I are not exactly on each other's Christmas card lists, but I did get all the students back on board and he made it back to pick up more passengers. We cannot have one foot in God's kingdom and one in Babylon whose standards are ever distancing themselves from the values we hold so precious at BYU and its sponsoring institution. Again, quoting Elder Maxwell, we cannot have our primary residence in Zion and keep a summer cottage in Babylon. So take a few moments before school starts this fall and commit to do whatever it takes to be a strong citizen of the Lord's country and kingdom both you're feeding it your valid stamped passport firmly in your grasp engage in private as well as public religious behavior just be nice and stay true in the face of trials if you do these things you'll have no need to wonder if you're going to make it you will and by make it i mean completing your byu education starting your careers of professional accomplishment and service raising with your eternal mate righteous families of your own leading them and leading god's kingdom into the generations to come. I'll conclude with one of my favorite scriptures from Doctrine and Covenants, section 90, 24 and 25. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good, if ye walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted one with another. It's all about that covenant. We can all make it. And all things shall work together for your good. Not just some things. Not most things. Not all things just on Tuesdays and Thursdays. All things shall work together for your good. I... Testify that God is a loving Heavenly Father who is concerned about the daily details of your life. Jesus Christ lives and loves us dearly. He is the Savior of the world, the whole world. Which world is the campus of this special university? I so testify in His name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was the blessings of righteous living with thoughts from Spencer J. Condy and R. Bruce Money. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter.